Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John chapter 8. Well, into 20 years ago or so, I lived in southeastern New Mexico and I had the opportunity to take a bunch of teenagers to the Carlsbad Caverns National Park. How many of you have ever been to Carlsbad Caverns? Did you feel like you got taken for your money when you went? It's just a big hole in the ground. Not much there to see. But because we lived about an hour and 20 minutes from there, we had information that uh, never gotten before. And one of the pieces of information we got was that the National Park had discovered a new cave that was not part of that big complex, which is very much a tourist trap now. And for a certain fee, we could take a group of kids over there, and we did that. We had to schedule it. We had to have a private guide from a park ranger. And we had to take enough water to hike um, about two hours, hour and a half to two hours, up to where the cave was. Had to drive way out into no man's land, not paved roads or anything like that. Hike up to this entry and uh, had to carry all of our own water. And we had to bring flashlights because this cave was new enough that it was not developed at all. And so as part of that day, we made it up there. That was a bit of a challenge anyway with some of our junior high kids uh, very hot and not a great experience until we got there. And then we started down into this cave. And immediately we got deep enough into it that we needed those flashlights. And it started getting cooler and it started getting smellier. You know, when bats live in a hole in the ground for a period of time, you can smell them long before you can see them. And we hiked all the way down into the bottom of this, and the park ranger was giving us the input that we needed to know all there is to know about the new cave. And then he said this. He said, I want you to do something for me, but before I tell you, uh, I need to make sure you're all on the same page. What we're about to do is very dangerous, and so it's important that you find a spot where you have your bearings about you and that you not move an inch when I tell you to turn off your flashlights. And so he did that. And of course, I was thinking, I have these group of junior high kids, and some of them are Superman kind of kids, thinking that they're indestructible and all of that. And I was thinking, we're going to lose a kid here before it's over with. There's one of them I wanted to lose, but that didn't work out. (laughs) And in the moment that he said, okay, everybody turn off your flashlights, we went from light to tangible darkness. I mean, it was so dark that you could feel it. Now, he didn't let us stay in that state for very long before he said, okay, turn on your lights. And one of the reasons he did is uh, he moved us quickly into turning back our lights because uh, some of our people started getting pretty scared in that moment. It's amazing how darkness can work on your head. And that all is a pretty good point of reference, I think, for us as we come to discuss and look at today the reality of the darkness of the world in which we live. It's not really any different as far as the darkness is concerned than it was in the first century. In first century Greco-Roman society in that little piece of land that we call Israel today, 
was a land full of darkness, lots of paganism, lots of emperor worship, a lot of those kinds of realities that caused those who were becoming followers of Jesus to want to pull back from some of that. Jesus in John chapter 8 now steps into a fight with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. As a matter of fact, there's already been enough evidence on the table for the religious leaders to start coming after him. And in John chapter 8, now what we have is this escalation of legal proceedings against Jesus. It's, it's this back and forth. And Jesus makes a claim, as we'll read in a few moments, and then they counter that with a legal challenge against them. And he comes back and he challenges them back and he actually indicts them. And so they respond to that and it's just this back and forth and by the time we get to the end of chapter 8, there have been those who have, uh, part of this, who have decided that Jesus must die. This, this part of John's gospel is a watershed for us in understanding how pervasive darkness can be. And so in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, or John tells us, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we're going to talk about some other verses as we go through this because it goes through the end of the chapter. But, but we're going to kind of camp out on verse 12 today because I think it gives us all we need to make sense of the darkness that is around us. When the darkness of your world gets tangible and it has names attached to it, names of people and names of situations and names of struggles. When your darkness gets overwhelming, don't miss verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. There's two two different ways that we need to take this. John writes it and Jesus says it in such a way that it opens two doors simultaneously for us, and we need to walk through both of them. So the first one that we find here is is what I call the directional component of what Jesus says. And and as we come into this, it's important that we catch some of what... Well, see, this is one of those deals where our English language lets us down just a little bit. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, it, it carries some connotation and some implications for us that we miss in our English. And, and so the idea here is that Jesus says, I am the light from which you benefit. It is a directional kind of a statement. I am the light that provides direction for the world. We could easily translate this. It doesn't look that way in English. It looks like it's just a simple kind of a statement. But it's important that we get this because what we find Jesus saying here is, well, before it's all said and done, he's going to take his place right alongside God. And that chaps these people. I mean, the religious sensibilities of these people is just sent over the edge with what Jesus has said here. So we catch this in a couple of different ways. The exchange that follows shows us, for instance, first, that Jesus, when he says, I am the light of the world, means that he is from the Father. Just quickly, let's read a couple of verses here, a few verses that support this. And I'm not going to read everything in between. So you'll have to go back and read the whole chapter to pull it together, but I want to hit the high points that help us see that Jesus has has this directional component in his mind. So Jesus is from the Father. Verse 14, Jesus answered. Okay, so let me stop and tell you what he answered. When he says, I am the light of the world, they immediately counter and say, you can't say that about yourself. 
And so they default to their law, which says there has to be at least two witnesses before something is taken as true. He's by himself. He makes this claim. He makes the statement. They catch it, the I am part of this, as, as what Jesus intends it to be. It is a God kind of a statement. And so they come back and say, well, your testimony is not valid. You, you're, you're not legally right to say that because there's no second person to verify your story. Verse 14 then, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know here, listen to what he says, for I know where I came from and where I am going. You do not know where I came from or where I am going. And with that, Jesus begins to lay this out. I am the light of the world means that first of all, I am from the father. Verse 29 also helps us see this. And he said, or, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And Jesus again doubles down. I came from the Father. That makes me the light of the world. Verse 42 now says something of the same thing for us. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Jesus now, three different statements, has amplified I am the light that provides direction to the Father. Because I came from the Father. This is a huge claim that Jesus is making. And it sets them off. But that's not enough because Jesus makes a few other claims here. These are tied to the fact not that he's just, not only that he's from the Father, but that he reveals the Father. Verse 26 I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And then finally, in verse 38, Jesus says, I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. And all of those statements come together. Let me just tie them up this way and we'll move on. What Jesus has said in those six statements amplify and solidify his claim to be the light of the world. And all of that is directional pointing to the Father. He comes from the Father. He reveals the Father. He is, in fact, the I am that he claims to be. That may not mean much to you yet, but let's pick up another verse or two that will help us. Go back to John chapter 1. Verses 1 through 5, because now in this prologue where John comes and he lays out what he's about to do. In this gospel, John gives us a theological presentation of who Jesus is. It's not just the story of the life of Jesus. John writes it in such a way so that we can get it that this Jesus is in fact the Son of God. So in the prologue, at the very beginning, John picks up and he begins to play this light and darkness one against the other. Motif. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not 
overcome it. And so we stop and we, we pull all that and go back to John 8 with me now. We'll be there the rest of the time. But what we find now is John as his presentation flowers with the words, I am the light of the world. Because Jesus is from the Father and he reveals the Father, then this statement, I am the light of the world, pushes us to understand that Jesus points us to the Father. It is a directional light, if you will. It's that statement and that reality that helps us understand that Jesus personifies God in the flesh and he helps us to understand who God is. It is a directional pointing, this Jesus the light. That may not, again, that that may not resonate much for you just yet, but I think it's important that we get the background of what's being written here. Because most scholars would tell us that this occurs in conjunction with the events of chapter 7, where Jesus is with his disciples at the Feast of Tabernacles. And as part of the Feast of Tabernacles, these Jewish people would gather together and it was a point of remembering what God had done for them as they transversed their way from Egypt to the Promised Land so many centuries before. And in that time of of moving out of Egypt and slavery to the promised land that God had laid out for them, there was this series of events that occurred for them. And and as they, these millions of people out in the wilderness, were, were not directionless, but it was kind of one of those tough things. How do you know what you're supposed to do and they, they were divided and there were people who were wanting to have their own way and saying Moses couldn't lead them and all that kind of stuff. And so God in his profound wisdom made a way for the children of Israel to know how to get to the promised land. If you were to go into your Bibles and look in the back at the, at the uh, maps that are back there and trace the route of the children of Israel leaving Egypt to get to the promised land, there's no way in the world it should have taken them 40 years to get there. Now, granted, there's millions of people out there, and there's not a whole lot of sustenance, not a whole lot of water, not a whole lot of food. So God had to deal with that stuff for them, with manna and water from the rocks and quails and all all that kind of stuff. But it was the directional part that was an issue for them in the early part of it. And so what what we find is God makes a way for them to know what he's doing. And the way to the promised land for them was to follow that pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And when that presence of God in that light, that fire at night, when it would move, the children of Israel knew that they were to move and follow it. That's the picture of the feast. And on the first night of the feast, when they would come and they would have this candle lighting that, according to scholars of the time, it would just light up the entire area. There were so many candles everywhere as they celebrated the presence of God as he led them to the promised land through these candles. It's in that context that Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. He takes his place as the presence of God with his people. (laughs) No wonder it made them mad. Nobody makes those kind of claims unless you happen to be him, and Jesus was. So let me stop before we go to the second point. It's only a two-point sermon. I'm almost through with the first one, so you could hope that I'm halfway through. Don't, Don't fall into that trap, but you could hope. 
Let's make sure that we wear what's ours to wear here. If Jesus ever was the light of the world, and he was, if he ever was, then he still is. And so this one element of what Jesus says here, I am the light that reveals the Father. I am the light that provides direction for the world. I am the light of the world. That claim by Jesus comes to us today and it helps us to understand that there is no way out of the darkness except through him. That's the picture that he's given. That's the first and foremost picture of this little passage here. He comes in and he wants us to know that in the world of darkness that is ours... He is the light. He, just like that pillar of fire, took the children of Israel across the wilderness into the promised land. Jesus is the one who takes us through the darkness of sin and the penalty of sin in our life and takes us to the threshold and across the threshold into life eternal. That same Jesus who said these words says that same thing to us today. So the question that I would have for you is, Have you experienced Jesus as the light of the world, the one who provides direction for you? If not, I would love to give you good news, but I'm going to just have to give you real news. Your life will be marked by darkness forever until you find the light who is Jesus Christ. So that's the directional part of this. But there's another element to what Jesus says here, and he's able to say both at the same time for us. The directional component that points us to God and reveals the Father to us and gives us eternal life. Now we also see that there is a journey component to this. There there is that movement part of that pillar that he's referring back to by coming at the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus now is pushing the ongoing need for light for us. Let me, let me put it in, I'm going to use some of those $4 theological terms they teach us in seminary. Sometimes I do that just so you know I went. Um, my dad told me some of the best input that I got was, you need to go to seminary, you need to learn all you can, you need to be the best student you can be, and then about five years after you get out of seminary, you'll have forgotten enough of that garbage, you'll be worth something again. So I'm still trying to figure out how to forget some of it, but Here's the value of some of it. There there are some terms that we put on this to help us see the distinction that's written into what Jesus says here. Jesus as the light of the world has that component that we call justification. It's that, that person, Jesus himself, as we will celebrate next week for Easter, who conquers death and the penalty of sin. And he makes that available to us and he gives us life. That's the Jesus who is the light of the world. That's justification because of what he's done for us. It it makes us, it gives us the opportunity to be just as if we had never sinned either. And the penalty of sin is taken for us. That's salvation. That's entering into salvation. But then there's a follow-up. There's a lifetime follow-up after that that is what we call sanctification. It's the point of becoming more like him. And it's that lifelong journey once we accept Christ and and we are forgiven of our sins. And then we have this lifelong journey of walking in the light. That's the last part of verse 12, by the way. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And all of this comes together now. So Jesus gives us that direction of the Father and that revealing of the Father. And then once we embrace that, then we have this lifetime of following him.
and he lights our path, he says. This is the life of discipleship. It fits neatly with the children of Israel in the wilderness following the pillar of fire around. It is a lifetime of obedience that he refers to here. Maybe we should stop and just own that enough by asking this question. Why is this necessary? Why bother? In other words, if I was sitting out there in your chair, and I'm just being totally honest here, uh, there's a good chance that I'd be sitting out there going, yeah, so what? You know the best two-word question you can ask of Bible reading is, so what? The reality is if you don't take what you hear and read and apply it in, then it does you very little good. Matter of fact, it might just hang you. So, so what? So, so what? Jesus is the light of the world. What's the big deal for that? If I know that my, my eternity is secure, this is the Baptist fallacy of our day, that, that I, I got my, my fire insurance that keeps me out of hell because I say that I believe in Jesus. So if I have that, why should I bother with anything else? Well, here's a couple of reasons. This, these are all, I mean, I can give you lots of reasons, but I'm going to pull them down to just a couple of what I consider to be very practical, pragmatic kind of reasons for you to embrace Jesus as the light of the world. First of all, the reality is that without light, we're all just flying blind. I, don't, I, I asked this question in the early service, and I didn't get any real answers out of it from anybody, so um, you can catch me afterwards if you know this or just kind of nod and, uh, at this point. But have you ever heard of uh, what's called a California stop in driving? So I grew up in West Texas, and uh, West Texas, y'all, we here in East Texas got all of the trees that were allotted to West Texas. Okay? They didn't ever make the shipment out there, and it's just flat. And I had, I had some guys that I ran around with. I, I called them friends. My mom didn't call them friends of, at all. Um, and I, I nearly got arrested with some of these guys more than once. And so uh, these were the guys that I hung out with in high school and got into a lot of trouble uh, coming out of junior high, into high school, and even after. Um, and so these guys love to live on the edge uh, in a lot of different ways. And so... This one guy, his name's Gary, and I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Gary was especially an edgy guy for us. He was always the one who wanted to go out to the edge, you know, the cutting edge of life, and dip his toe right over the edge of the razor. And so he just pulled us along with him most of the time because we were idiots. And uh, Gary's the one who taught me about A California stop. Out in West Texas, it's flat. There are no trees. And so one of the things that he would do, because he never really liked to slow down, he had this old Toyota Corolla, one of those little bit, back before, you know, these were foreign-made good cars, this was a little cracker box of a car, and we would pile a bunch of us in there, and we'd go out and get into all kinds of trouble. And Gary loved to drive fast in that little car. And especially at night, uh, if we were driving out through the countryside or through the edge of the city and come up on a, one of those four-way stop signs, instead of slowing down to make sure that nobody... He would just turn off his lights and fly through it. 
And the reason, that's called California stop, he said. And the reason you do that, he said, is because you can see if another car's coming, if you turn your lights off, you can see the light coming at you. And I kept thinking, and I still think, okay, by the way, don't do this at home. Don't do this, right? I will not take responsibility for you getting a wreck doing this, all right? I kept thinking, if you know this to be true, what keeps somebody else from knowing this to be true? And they fly through the thing at the same time. All right, now here's the point of that. In those instances, we were flying blind in a car. I I came to realize, you know, if you have your headlights turned off while you're driving, you can't see the cow that got out and is in the middle of the road until you hit him. Life is a lot like that for us. We can go to the book of Ephesians and other places and hear about spiritual warfare and the, the dark powers of this world. This world's full of darkness. And some of our lives, even here today, have a lot of darkness in them. And if it weren't for the presence of Jesus Christ and the opportunity that we all have to pull into him who is the light of the world, we easily find ourselves flying blind through life. It's why so many people live lives that are marked by catastrophic wrecks in relationships, in finances, And certainly spiritually. Without light, we fly blind. And we need Jesus, the light of the world, to step in and provide us the direction that we need and the light for the moment. But to compound things, one of the reasons that we need this is because somebody keeps moving the furniture. So this... (laughs) I don't know if I was a good youth minister or not, but I certainly gave them stuff to think about. Um, When I was a youth minister in Hobbs, New Mexico, our church had a cabin at Glorietta Conference Center, and so we spent a lot of time doing retreats and stuff up there. uh, On this one particular retreat, we were going to be studying through the Sermon on the Mount, and I allowed our college students to go with us, uh, use college students in that ministry uh, as kind of junior sponsors and it helped me to get a lot, a lot of stuff done. And so we had, I don't know, probably close to 100 kids on that particular retreat. Some of them were college students. And, um, and so I, we got to this Bible study, and we were talking about being the light of the world and some of those things that Jesus said. And so uh, I asked for a volunteer. Now, it's possible that I might have set Robert up for this um, because I think that I... Yeah, I did. Um, I went to other college students and I told them, I said, look, when I ask this, I want you to pick Robert. Okay, now here's the deal though. Robert was Mr. Wonderful at the high school. He was the great athlete. He was you know, the popular guy everybody wanted. Uh, and he got into a lifestyle that was much like the one that I had left. And uh, he, had, he had some catastrophic stuff happen to him uh, between his high school years and what would have been his college years. Um, and he was coming, he was in the process of coming back to Jesus when I was there. And I got a chance to kind of pour my life into him. And he was one of those guys that I just loved. Uh, and because he could take anything, I mean, he just, he, he wasn't, 
You know, he didn't take anything personally. He didn't get offended. He was just the guy that I knew I could count on for a lot of different things. And so I said, I need a volunteer. And all the college kids went, Robert, he volunteers. And so I pulled him in. And here's, here's the exercise we did. We had a, uh, the cabin that we were in had two dorms in the back, girls on one side, boys on the other. And the front part of the house uh, of the cabin was a big meeting area with a kitchen on one side. And so we were all in there, like I said, easily 100 people in there. And so I said, okay, so here's what we're going to do, Robert. I want you to walk across the room. And so he got on one side and he walked across. Now, we had kids everywhere. We had furniture everywhere. And I said, I want you to walk across the room. And while you're doing it, I want you to pay really good attention to what you see. Because the next time I have you do this, it won't be quite so easy. And so he walked across the room. He, you know, he, no big deal. I said, okay, so this time what we're going to do is I'm going to blindfold you. I want you to do it again. And so we pulled him over. We blindfolded him, and we turned off the lights. And I told all the other kids without him being there to hear it, now, as soon as I turn off the lights, I want you to move, and I want you to move furniture. And so Robert, on, on cue, started walking across there. He didn't make two steps before he fell over somebody. And he got up, laughing, and he took another step or so, and he tripped over a chair. And he got up, laughing, and he fell, and he fell, and he fell, and he fell, until finally he got to the other side of the room. Here's the deal I want you to get from that. In life, people will keep moving the furniture on you. And when that happens, and you fall and bust your skull, you may not be laughing about that. As a matter of fact, you do that often enough and you start questioning whether God really does love you or not. Jesus steps into that reality for us, that reality in this world where everything changes and about the time we think we got our bearings about us, something else changes and it just throws us for a loop. And some of us never really recover well from those falls. And it becomes a life lived in the darkness. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here's a good Old Testament scripture to throw in at this point. Psalm 119, 105. I'm sure some of our, some of our kids who've been involved in Awana can help us with this one. Psalm 119, 105. For your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Jesus takes his place in this thread of light that runs throughout Scripture. From the very beginning in Genesis 1 and the story of creation, there is this pointed moment when God creates light and he separates light from the darkness. Jesus, at one of the high moments of their feasting years in Jewish religion, stands up and he takes his place alongside that pillar of fire and he says, I am the light of the world and if you'll just walk with me, you'll never have to walk in the darkness again. Boy, that's, that is good news for us because we live in a world that is marked by darkness. I asked this in the first service, didn't get a real answer to this. Some of you scientists might be able to help me out. You know, we have calculated, we being scientists, have calculated the speed of light. Remember how much that is, what it is? 186,000 miles per second. 
Yes? Yeah, let's go with that. Okay. All right. So let's go with that. Somebody's Googling it right now. I know. You know what I don't understand about science? Why haven't we calculated the speed of darkness? You know what I found in my life? Darkness seems to set in a lot quicker than light does sometimes. I'm sure there's a good scientific answer, and it probably has something to do with light as it travels and darkness doesn't have to travel. But the reality is for us, sometimes those moments in life when the bottom drops out, it gets dark right now. Kind of like a hurricane has its effects on this area when all the electricity's out. It's into that mix that Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And if you will walk with me, you'll never walk in darkness. Practically speaking, this implies a few things. One of them is that we need to be able to hear the voice of God. I, I guess implied in that is, is this truth, that God wants you to hear his voice. It's not God's design for you to have to walk in darkness. He, he wants you. That's why Jesus came in the first place, to take care of the dark problem for us. He wants us to walk with him. He wants us to experience the light that he is in our daily paths. So that means then that we need to position ourselves so that we have the opportunity to hear that. And sometimes it's a timing problem for us. So sometimes we, we get immediately confronted with the darkness, and if Jesus doesn't step in just like that, then we give place to the darkness, and we just start running headlong into the dark, looking for the light. Whereas Jesus always says, just walk with me. You don't have to worry about the dark. Let me finish this way. Let me ask our musicians to come on up. God really does care about you and really does want you to hear from him. So my question to you is, where is God in your life today? Are you groping your way through the darkness? This morning, I got up at 3.30. It seems to be a habit for me on Sunday mornings. Uh, it takes me a while to get prayed up and be ready to preach, I guess, but... Um, so I got up at 3.30 this morning and I went in to get the holy water ready. Now you may call it coffee, but it's holy water at my house. Especially at 3.30, <laughs> too soon. That's good, that's good. Um, so uh, I went in and made coffee. Now our house is situated such where my office at home is on one end of the house and the kitchen's on the exact opposite end of the house. And so my office is at the end of a hallway. It's not particularly long, uh, maybe the width of our sound booth back there, uh, that long. But um, it's super dark at 3.30 in the morning when you're carrying a cup of hot coffee. And for some reason, okay, and I don't know if it's just because I'm this way or if it's a, it's a function of darkness or what, but... Every time early in the morning that I get in that hallway like that and make, you know, with a cup of coffee or whatever and head back to my office to study, um, it's so dark in there. I don't want to turn any lights on because I don't want to wake Teresa up. Uh, and as I start down that hallway, my mind is, knows that it's a straight shot. 
But something in me keeps believing that it's going a different direction. And so I always start running into the wall. And she has crosses on one side of the wall. And so I know that, you know, lacerate my head or something like that on one of those or knock one of them off and wake her up. And, and so I'm always really careful not to be noisy walking down there. But my head keeps saying, you need to bear left. You need to bear left. And I always run into the door. Always. That is our lives, folks. We think we know where we're going, but if there's no light there to guide us and if Jesus isn't front and center with us, we're going to be knocking into walls and knocking into problems and overcome by the darkness. Sometimes, like that cave in southeastern New Mexico, sometimes the darkness of our lives is tangible and overwhelming but never to Jesus. Never to Jesus. There used to be a commercial on TV. seemed like it was for a car company. And the whole point of the commercial was that they're out on the salt flats in California, Nevada, wherever that is, and they make this point that in total darkness, the light of a candle can be seen for so many football fields long. So last night before we went to bed, I had to take Teresa's dog out. She has a dog. I took her out. Um, but I knew I was, had this sermon on my mind, so I decided I would be the good guy and take the dog out. So uh, she gave me a flashlight for Christmas. And so I thought I'll just check it because I had been talking about a flashlight that one of our guys here got, super souped-up flashlight, and I thought, I need one of those. So she got me one kind of like that. And so I went out in the front yard, and this is a powerful flashlight. And so I thought, I don't see how far this thing will reach. And, so I was shining the light. I was up in the tops of the trees, not in people's homes. So I don't really want to go to jail. And, uh, and so all the way down my street and then back behind us and then back up to the north, uh, man, that light was reaching way out there. And it just kind of gave me that point of reference with this passage. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Darkness will never overcome So if you're here today and you're more in the dark than you are embracing the light, please hear me say this. There is a better way to live. Jesus' claims are still as valid as they were in this case. And he will point you to the Father and he will give you a relationship with God himself. And if you'll walk with him, you'll never be overcome by the darkness again. Why would you turn that offer down? I don't understand that. So don't. And our invitation time is designed so that you can have the opportunity, whether it's where you are, if you want to come talk to me, pray with me, Aaron, whoever else, we'll we'll love to tell you about life with Jesus. But you have to make the choice. So make it now. Father, we thank you for the time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that it holds for us. So now we ask that you would do your work in the lives of your people. Change lives for your glory is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.